Chapter 4 of Cardinal Wolsey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Cardinal Wolsey by Mandel Crichton. Chapter 4 The Field of the Cloth of Gold, 1518 to 1520. The object of Wolsey's foreign policy had been attained by the Universal Peace of 1518. England had been set up as a mediator in the politics of Europe. The old claims of the Empire and the Papacy had passed away in the conflict of national and dynastic interests, in which Papacy and Empire were alike involved. England, by virtue of its insular position, was practically outside the objects of immediate ambition which distracted its continental neighbours. But England's commercial interests made her desirous of influence, and Henry VIII was bent upon being an important personage. It was Wolsey's object to gratify the king at the least expense to the country, and so long as the king could be exalted by peaceful means, the good of England was certainly promoted at the same time. The position of England as a pacifier of Europe was one well qualified to develop a national consciousness of great duties to perform, and it may be doubted if a country is ever great unless it has a clear consciousness of some great mission. Wolsey's policy had been skilful, and the results which he had obtained were glorious, but it was difficult to maintain the position which he had won. It was one thing to proclaim a peace, it was another to contrive that that peace should be kept. One important question was looming in the distance when Wolsey's peace was signed, the succession to the empire on Maximilian's death. Unfortunately, this question came rapidly forward for decision, as Maximilian died suddenly on the 12th of January 1519, and the politicians of Europe waited breathlessly to see who would be chosen as his successor. The election to the empire rested with the seven electors, the chief princes of Germany, but if they had been minded on this occasion to exercise freely their right, it would have been difficult for them to do so. The empire had for a century been with the House of Austria, and Maximilian had schemed eagerly that it should pass to his grandson, Charles. It is true that Charles was already King of Spain, Lord of the Netherlands, and King of Naples and Sicily, it seemed dangerous to increase still further his great dominions. But Charles urged his claim, and his great rival, Francis I of France, entered the lists against him. Strange as it may seem that a French king should aspire to rule over Germany, Francis I could urge that he was almost as closely connected with Germany as was Charles, whose interests were bound up with those of Spain and the Netherlands. In the face of these two competitors, it was hard for the electors to find a candidate of a humbler sort who would venture to draw upon himself the wrath of their disappointment. Moreover, the task of ruling Germany was not such as to attract a small prince. The Turks were threatening its borders, and a strong man was needed to deal with many pressing problems of its government. The electors, however, were scarcely guilty of any patriotic considerations. They quietly put up their votes for auction between Francis and Charles, and deferred a choice for as long as they could. Both competitors turned for help to their allies, the Pope and the King of England, who found themselves greatly perplexed. Leo X did not wish to see French influence increased, as France was a dangerous neighbour in Italy, nor did he wish to see the Empire and the Kingdom of Naples both held by the same man, for that was against the immemorial policy of the papacy. So Leo intrigued and prevaricated to such an extent that it was almost impossible to determine what he was aiming at. He managed, however, to throw hindrances in Wolsey's path, though we cannot be sure that he intended to do so. Wolsey's plan of action was clear, but it was not dignified. He wished to preserve England's mediating attitude and give offence to no one. Consequently, he secretly promised his help to both Charles and Francis, 
and tried to arrange that each should be ignorant of his promises to the other. All went well till Leo, in his diplomatic divagations, commissioned his legate to suggest to Henry VIII that it might be possible, after all, to find some third candidate for the empire, and that he was ready to try and put off the election for that purpose, if Henry agreed. Henry seemed to have considered this as a hint from the Pope to become a candidate himself. He remembered that Maximilian had offered to resign the empire in his favour, but he forgot the sufficient reasons which had led him to dismiss the proposal as fantastic and absurd. His vanity was rather tickled with the notion of rivaling Charles and Francis, and he thought that if the Pope were on his side, his chances would be as good as hers. We can only guess at Wolsey's dismay when his master laid his project before him. Whatever Wolsey thought, he knew it was useless to offer any opposition. However much he might be able to influence the king's opinions in the making, he knew that he must execute them once they were made. If Henry had made up his mind to become a candidate for the empire, a candidate he must be. All that could be done was to prevent his determination from becoming hopelessly disastrous. So, Wolsey pointed out that great as were the advantages to be obtained by gaining the empire, there were dangers in being an unsuccessful candidate. It was necessary first to make sure of the Pope, and then to prosecute Henry's candidature by fair and honourable means. Francis was spending money lavishly to win supporters to his side, and Charles was reluctantly compelled to follow his example, lest he should be outbid. It would be unwise for Henry to squander his money and simply raise the market price of the votes. Let him make it clear to the greedy Germans they would not see the colour of England's money till the English king had really been elected. So Wolsey sent the most cautious instructions to his agent in Rome to see if the Pope would take responsibility of urging Henry to become a candidate. But Leo was too cautious and affected not to understand him the hint. And then in May, Pace, who was now the King's secretary, was sent to Germany to sound the electors with equal care. He was to approach the electors who were on Francis's side as though Henry were in favour of Francis and was to act similarly to those who were in favour of Charles. And then he was to hint cautiously it might be well to choose from someone more closely connected with Germany. And if they showed any acquiescence, was to suggest that Henry was of the German tongue, and then to sing his praises. Probably both Pace and Wolsey knew that it was too late to do anything serious. Pace reported that the money of France and Spain was flowing on all sides, and was of the opinion that the empire was the dearest merchandise that was ever sold, and would prove the worst that was ever bought to him that should he obtain it. Yet still he professed to have some hopes, and even asked for money to enter the lists of corruption. But this was needless, as the election at last proceeded quickly. The Pope came round to the side of Charles, being the least of two evils, and Charles was elected on the 28th of June. Thus, Wolsey succeeded in satisfying his master's demands without committing England to any breach with either of her allies. Henry VIII could scarcely be gratified of the part that he had played, but Wolsey could convince him that he had tried his best, and at any rate no harm had been done. Though Henry's proceedings were known to Francis and Charles, there was nothing at which they could take offence. Henry had behaved with duplicity, but there was nothing to be expected in those days. He had not pronounced himself strongly against either. The ill world that had been long simmering between Charles V and Francis I had risen to the surface, and a long rivalry between the two monarchs was now declared. Each looked for allies, and the most important ally was England. Each had hopes of winning over the English king, and Wolsey wished to keep alive without satisfying the hopes of both, and so established still more securely the power of England as holding the balance of the peace in Europe. Wolsey's conduct in this manner throws much light on his relations to the king, and the method in which he retained his influence and managed to carry out his own designs. He appreciated the truth that a statesman must lead while seeming to follow, a 
a truth which applies equally to all forms of government. Wolsey was responsible to no one but the king, and so had a better opportunity than has a statesman who serves a democracy to obtain permission to carry out a consecutive policy. But on the other hand, he was more liable to be thwarted and interrupted in matters of detail by the interference of a superior. Wolsey's far-seeing policy was endangered by the king's vanity and obstinacy. He could not ask for time to justify his own wisdom, but was forced to obey. Yet even then, he would not abandon his own position and set himself to minimise the inconvenience. It is impossible to know how often Wolsey was at other times obliged to give way to the king and adopt the second best course. But in this case, we can find clear indications of the process. When he was driven from his course, he contrived that the deviation should be as unimportant as possible. Wolsey's task of maintaining peace by English mediation was beset with difficulties now that the breach between Francis I and Charles V was clearly made. It was necessary for England to be friendly to both, and not to be drawn by its friendliness towards either to offend the other. In the matter of the imperial election, English influence had been somewhat on the side of Charles, and Francis was now the one who needed appropriation. The treaty with France had provided for a personal interview between the two kings, and Francis was anxious it should take place at once. For this purpose, he strove to win the good offices of Wolsey. He assured him that in the case of a papal election, he could command 14 votes, which would be given to him in his favour. Moreover, he conferred on him a signal mark of his confidence by nominating him to the plenipotentiary for the arrangements about the forthcoming interview. By this, all difficulties were removed, and Wolsey stood forward before the eyes of Europe as the accredited representative of the kings of England and France at the same time. It is no wonder that men marvelled at such an unheard-of position for an English subject. But nothing that Francis had to give could turn Wolsey away from his own path. No sooner did he know that the French interview was agreed upon than he suggested to Charles it would be well for him to also have a meeting with the English king. The proposal was eagerly accepted, and Wolsey conducted the negotiations about both interviews side by side. Rarely did two meetings cause such a flow of ink and raise so many knotty problems. At last it was agreed that Charles should visit Henry in England in an informal way before the French interview took place. It was difficult to induce the punctilious Spaniards to give way to Wolsey's requirements. It was a hard thing for one who bore the highest-sounding title of Emperor to agree to visit a King of England on his own terms. But Wolsey was resolute that everything should be done in such a way as to give France the least cause of complaint. When the Spanish envoys objected to his arrangements or proposed alterations, he brought them to their bearings by saying, Very well, then do not do it, and be gone. They were made to feel their dependence on himself. The interview was of their seeking and must be held on terms which he proposed or not at all. This, no doubt, was felt to be very haughty conduct on Wolsey's part, but he had set on foot the scheme of this double interview by which Henry was to be glorified and England's meteorical position assured. It was his business to see this plan succeeded, so he turned a deaf ear to the offers of the Spanish ambassadors. He was not to be moved by the promise of ecclesiastical revenues in Spain. Even when the influence of Spain was proffered to secure his election to the papacy, coldly refused. It has been said that Wolsey was open to bribes, and this seemingly torturous policy had been accounted for by the supposition that he inclined to the side which promised him most. This, however, is an entire mistake. Wolsey went his own way, but at the same time he did not disregard his personal profit. He was too great a man to be bribed, but his greatness entailed magnificence, and magnificence is expensive. He regarded it as natural that sovereigns who threw work upon his shoulders should make some recognition of his labours. This was the custom of the time, and Wolsey was by no means singular in receiving gifts from foreign kings. 
The chief lords of Henry's court received pensions from the King of France, and the lords of the French court were similarly rewarded by Henry. This was merely a complimentary custom, and was open and avowed. Wolsey received a pension from Francis I, and a further sum as compensation for the bishopric of Tournai, which he resigned when Tournai was returned to France. In like manner, Charles V rewarded him by a Spanish bishopric, but Wolsey declined the office of bishop, and preferred to receive a fixed pension secured on the revenues of the sea. This iniquitous arrangement was carried out with the Pope's consent, and such like arrangements were by no means rare. They were natural results of the excessive wealth of the Church, which was diverted to the royal uses by a series of fictions, more or less barefaced, but all tending to the weakening of the ecclesiastical organisation. Still, the fact remains that Wolsey thought no shame of receiving pensions from Francis and Charles alike, but there was nothing secret or extraordinary in this. Wolsey regarded it as only obvious that his statesmanship should be rewarded by those to whom it was exercised, but the Emperor and the King of France never hoped by these pensions that they would attach Wolsey to their side. The promise by which they tried to win him was the promise of the papacy, and to this Wolsey turned a deaf ear. He is seven times more powerful than the Pope, wrote the Venetian ambassador, and perhaps Wolsey himself at the time was of the same opinion. Meanwhile, Francis was annoyed when he heard of the dealings with Charles, and tried to counteract them by pressing for an early date of his meeting with Henry VIII. It is amazing to find how large a part domestic events were made to play in these matters of high policy when occasion needed. Francis urged he was very anxious for his queen to be present to welcome Catherine, but she was expecting a confinement, and if the interview did not take place soon, she would be unable to appear. Wolsey replied with equal concern for family matters that the emperor was anxious to visit his aunt, whom he had never seen, and Henry would, could not be so churlish as to refuse a visit from his wife's relatives. Catherine, on her side, was overjoyed at this renewal of intimacy with the Spanish court, to whose interests she was strongly attached, and tried to prevent the understanding with France, by declaring that she could not possibly have her dresses ready under three months. In her dislike of the French alliance, Queen Catherine expressed the popular sentiment. The people had long regarded France as the natural enemy of England, and were slow to give up their prejudices. The nobles grew more and more discontented with Wolsey's policy, which they did not care to understand. They only saw that their expectations of a return to power were utterly disappointed. Wolsey, backed by officials such as Pace, was all-powerful, and they were disregarded. Wolsey was working absolutely single-handed. It is a remarkable proof of his skill that he was able to draw the king to follow him, unhesitatingly at the sacrifice of his personal popularity, and in spite of the representations of those who were immediately around him. Moreover, Wolsey, in his capacity of representative in the kingdoms of England and France, had in his hands the entire management of all concerning the coming interview. He fixed the place with due regard to the honour of England, almost on English soil. The English king was not to lodge outside his own territory of Calais. The spot appointed for the meeting was on the meadows between Guines and Erdere, on the borderland of the two kingdoms. Wolsey had to decide which of the English nobles and gentry were to attend the king, and had to assign each his office and dignity. The king's retinue amounted to nearly 4,000, and the queen's was somewhat over 1,000. A very slight knowledge of human nature will serve to show how many people Wolsey must necessarily have offended. If the ranks of his enemies were large before, they must have increased enormously when his arrangements were made known. Still, Wolsey was not daunted, and however much everyone from Francis and Charles still aggrieved by the proceedings, all had to obey, and everything that took place was due to Wolsey's will alone. The interview with Charles was simple. On the 26th of May, 1520, he landed at Dover. 
and was met by Wolsey. Next morning, Henry rode to meet him and escort him to Canterbury, which was his headquarters. On the 29th, Charles rode to Sandwich, where he embarked for Flanders. What subjects the two monarchs discussed we can only dimly guess. Each promised to help the other if attacked by France, and probably Henry undertook to bring about a joint conference of the three sovereigns to discuss common interests. The importance of the meeting lay in its display of friendliness. In the warning which it gave to France, that he was not to count upon the exclusive possession of England's goodwill. No sooner was the Emperor gone than Henry embarked for Calais and arrived at Guine on the 4th of June. We need not describe again the field of the cloth of gold, to furnish which the art of the Renaissance was used to deck medieval pageantry. It's enough to say that the stately palaces of wood clothe the barren stretch of the flat meadows, that every ornament which man's imagination could devise was employed to lend splendour to the scene. No doubt it was barbaric wasteful and foolish, but men in those days loved the sight of magnificence and the display was as much for the enjoyment of countless spectators as for the self-glorification of those who were the main actors. In those days the solace of a poor man's life was the occasional enjoyment of a stately spectacle, and after all, splendour gives more pleasure to the lookers-on than to the personages of the show. Most splendid among the glittering throng was the figure of Wolsey, who had to support the dignity of representative of both kings and spared no pains to do it to the full. But while the jousts went on, Wolsey was busy with diplomacy. There were many points relating to good understanding between France and England, which he wished to arrange. The projected marriage of the Dauphin with Mary of England, the payment due from France to England on several heads, the relations between France and Scotland and the like. More important than these was the reconciliation of Charles with Francis. Wolsey pressed to the utmost of his persuasiveness without, however, reaching any definite conclusion. Charles was hovering on the Flemish border, ready to hint from Wolsey to join the conference, but Wolsey could find no good reason for giving it, and when the festivities came to an end on the 24th of June, it might be doubted if much substantial good had resulted from the interview. No doubt the French and English fraternised and swore friendship over their cups, but tournaments were not the happiest means of allaying feelings of rivalry, and the protestations of friendship were little more than lip-deep. Yet Wolsey cannot be blamed for being over-sanguine. It was at least a worthy end that he had before him, the removal of long-standing hostility, the settlement of other disputes, the union of two neighbouring nations by the assertion of common aims and common interests. However, we may condemn the methods which Wolsey used, at least we must admit his end was in accordance with the most enlightened views of modern statesmanship. When Henry had taken his leave of Francis, he waited in Calais for the coming of Charles, whose visit to England was understood to be merely preliminary to further negotiations. Again, Henry held the important position he went to meet Charles at Gravelines, where he stayed for a night, and then escorted Charles as a guest to Calais, where he stayed from the 10th to the 14th. The result of the conference was a formal treaty of alliance between the two sovereigns, which Charles proposed to confirm by betrothing himself to Henry's daughter, Mary. As she was a child of four years old, such an undertaking did not bind him to much, but Mary was already betrothed to the Dauphin, while Charles was also already betrothed to Charles of France, so that the proposal aimed at a double breach of existing relationships and treaties. Henry listened to the scheme, which opened up by way of further negotiation, and the two monarchs parted with protestations of friendship. It was now the turn of Francis to hang about the place where Henry was holding conference with his rival, in hopes that he too might be invited to discussions. He had to content himself with hearing that Henry rode a steed, which he presented to him, and that his face did not look so contented and cheerful, as when he was on the meadows of Guine. In due time, he received from Henry an account of what had passed between himself and the Emperor. 
Henry informed him of Charles's marriage projects and of his proposal on an alliance against France, both of which Henry falsely said he had rejected with holy horror. Truly the records of diplomacy are dreary, and the results of all this display, this ingenious scheming and this deceit seemed ludicrously small. The upshot, however, was that Wolsey's ideas remained dominant, and that the position which he had marked out for England was still maintained. He had been compelled to change the form of his policy, but his essence was unchanged. European affairs could no longer be directed by a universal peace under the guarantee of England, so Wolsey substituted for it a system of separate alliances with England, by which England exercised a mediating influence on the policy of the two monarchs, whose rivalry threatened a breach of European peace. He informed Francis of the schemes of Charles, that he might show him how much depended on English mediation. He so conducted matters that Charles and Francis should both be aware that England could make advantageous terms with either, that her interests did not tend to one side rather than the other, that both should be willing to secure her goodwill and not shrink from taking any step which would throw her on the side of his adversary. It was a result worth achieving, though the position was precarious and required constant watchfulness to maintain. End of chapter 4